Revelation chapter 5. This is our text for this morning. This also is the reading of God's holy word. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you for you are the one who has revealed yourself to us. Father, that your word is truth, that your son is almighty, that he is the lamb that was slain, that he died in the place of sinners, that he indeed is God, that death could not contain him that he was raised to life, that he was resurrected, that he ascended to heaven, and he sits at your right hand. We thank you, Father, that you exalted him to the highest place, that at his name every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, we acknowledge that in this world now, the name of our Lord is mocked and slandered and spoken evil of. It's used as a curse word. It's used flippantly. And Father, we pray that we, your people, would not be those who do so, that we would be careful, that your name would be praised and honored, that your name is a tower to which we run and which we are safe. Father, we pray that we would have hope, that we would look forward to the day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the name of our Lord Jesus. Father, we pray for the good news of the gospel to go forward with power this day. Remind us, Father, that it is by Christ's blood 
that we have been bought, that we have been set free, that we have been called to be a kingdom and priests. Father, we thank you for Christ's mighty work. Father, not everything is as seems. And pray, Father, that we would believe these truths by faith. We thank you for your love for us. We pray that Jesus would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Perhaps you have a favorite sports team. Would that be a college team or a high school team or uh, a professional team? You look through the the various mascots that these are going to be fierce animals or uh, aggressive people or whatever whatever you want to think about. Right? You, You think about the lions, the tigers, the bears. How many mascots? How many? Do you ever heard of a? I heard a banana slug, right? But how often do you hear about a lamb? Hey, my team, we're the lambs. Well, that's not intimidating. That's not intimidating, or, or like an ostrich, right? No, no one, no one. This is there's there's no intimidation factor there. But you realize, in this passage, we have Jesus described as the Lion of Judah, but he's also described as the Lamb that was slain. The world doesn't look upon a lamb and say, wow, we will cower in fear at this lamb. But we see later in Revelation that they are fearful because the lamb will come as judge. You realize the world doesn't respect the concept of a lamb. But God sent his son that others would say, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that you and I can see that we don't need a lion or a bear or a tiger. What you and I need is a lamb, the perfect lamb, the lamb that provides for us what you and I desperately need. That's righteousness. That's a perfect sacrifice. Here, as we think about this book of Revelation, we had John, island of Patmos, that he has these visions. The first vision he received, the uh, the seven letters to the churches and perhaps I didn't emphasize it enough but the the details that come up in those seven letters regarding what Jesus is described as what he promises his people they all come up again throughout the book of Revelation we also see that these various visions so that was the first vision he received uh, he was commanded hey write these seven letters to the churches in Asia in Asia Minor specifically and then Revelation 4 and 5 account for the second vision that John has. So last week we talked about uh, the one who is seated on a throne. And this is not a separate vision. Maybe we think about those who understand uh, uh, plays and and drama, right? So you have have act one, and then you have scene one and scene two. So you think about uh, this vision is is called act, act two, and it's scene one, which is the one seated on a throne, And then here we have scene two, the lamb who was slain. This book of Revelation was written at a time when there was all kinds of persecution and affliction and turmoil and unrest. Uh, This fledgling church, uh, you think about the Lord Jesus and when this would have been written, was it in the the mid-first century or late-first century? Whatever's the case, not much time had passed. And you would think, well, what the church needs is to have a period of stability so they can grow, so they can grow and, and, and take root. But that's not what God had for them. He had other plans, that there was turmoil, 
that there was temptation from the false gods and uh, those who were despots who uh, who wanted to push these Christians to say, hey, listen, you will either bow the knee to Jesus or you will bow the knee to Caesar. Hey, why, why are you worshiping just one God when you worship all these other gods with us? Uh, come join in our festivities and our revelries that we call uh, our delight. And Christians see that and say, well, that's the life we once lived when we worship false gods. We cannot continue in that. Well, and then you can imagine what First Peter talks about, they will revile you. And this is what was happening. Here we think about how a great promise was given in the beginning of Revelation. Revelation 1, 3. Blessing upon those who read, those who hear, those who keep the words of these prophecies. And here we, we ought to remember that Revelation reminds us that not everything is as seems. What we see happening in this world, the world respects power. It respects fear. It respects those who are in authority, who, who lord it over others. But here, by faith, we ought to understand, this is not the way that our Lord Jesus rules. Our Lord Jesus is the one who didn't lord it over others. He came to serve. And he didn't come to be served. And he gave his life a ransom for many. This should change our entire way of thinking about how one gets ahead, how one affects change. Not everything is as seems. And this is what we as Christians need to hear. Despite what's going on in the world, we realize that our Lord Jesus indeed is victorious. We need that regular reminder. And we need that regular reminder that he is entirely in charge. So we see in this chapter, Revelation 5, Jesus, the slain lamb, is worthy of worship and to carry out God's eternal plan of judgment and redemption. Jesus, the slain lamb, is worthy of worship and to carry out God's eternal plan of judgment and redemption. We'll look at this in two points. The first, Jesus is worthy to carry out God's eternal plan. And second, Jesus is worthy to receive worship. So the first point, Jesus is worthy to carry out God's eternal plan. We have this in verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And we think back to what just happened in Revelation 4. So they're both part of the same vision. And Revelation 4, we had the the scene of one who is seated on the throne and that there were the four cherubim or the four living creatures and then the 24 elders. The other, that later in the book of Revelation, we have the 24 elders uh, being described as consisting of the 12 patriarchs, the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel and also that the 12 apostles. So you think about Old Testament church and New Testament church or, or the old era, the new era. So this represents the church throughout time, the leadership of the church throughout time. That uh, 
the cherubim were the ones who were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The focus, the emphasis in that Revelation 4 is on God, who is Lord of creation. He created all things. All things were created by him and for him, and everything exists because of him. And then we have in Revelation 5, you have a transition. So the focus and the emphasis transitions from glory and praise to God the creator to the God of redemption. And instead of merely uh, the one seated on the throne, we're seeing that uh, this worship is extended also to this lamb who is slain. I mentioned in Revelation 4, we have various scenes. Well, there's in Revelation it happens, but in other, other parts of Scripture, when you have an angel... And someone sees, normally when someone, the scene of someone seeing an angel, that they, they turn white and they, they fall over because they're, they're scared, right? This is out of shock. And usually the angel is saying, do not, do not fear. But then here John, later in Revelation, he bows down to worship. And the angel corrects them and says, do not do it. Worship God, right? So there's an immediate correction. You notice here that uh, we see the worship from Revelation 4, there was no correction uh, to the worship that was being offered there. There was also no correction when this worship extends to the Lamb who is slain. No one stops and says, hey, wait a minute. I'm supposed to worship the one seated on the throne. What are you doing worshiping this Lamb? There's no correction. There's, in fact, there's a doubling, tripling down where the praise that is offered to God is extended to the Lamb. So that's the overview that we see in Revelation 5. The big question that comes up is this book or, or scroll. You think about how uh, it's, it's a writing. So is it a book that, that we have an understanding, you know, like a, a bound book, bound on one side? Or is it uh, two sticks that rolls, you know, the tra traditional view of the scroll? It's not important, right? You think about it. It's some writing. It's some method of writing. But we're told it's written on, on the front and the back. So it probably is a scroll because uh, the whole concept, you have something in between the scroll and the book. It was called a codex, right? Very similar to, to a bound book. But what was significant, we're told, is that the scroll was written uh, within, meaning on the inside, and also on the back. And the big question is, what does this scroll with the seven seals symbolize? Various theories, but perhaps the best one supported uh, is that this book or this scroll with the seven seals in the right hand of God uh, represents God's eternal plan. He, he has this eternal plan that it's not just covering the big picture, it's covering every detail. And you have some idea of this book, this plan, Psalm 139, that the psalmist says that one day was written into your book before one of them came to pass. This understanding that our lives, it's not as if, you remember back when we were kids, they had these books called Choose Your Own Adventure, right? You choose your own adventure book. And, and for me, it seems like any time I, I, I read those books, 
I only read about four pages because I was immediately like cast off and, and, I, and I died and I went into the wrong tunnel, whatever's the case, right? So, so it's not like I could read 120 pages. They don't have those books anymore, it seems like. But the bottom line is this life is not a choose-your-own-adventure. We, we, we do make choices every day, but from beginning to end, God's plan is written out. And specifically, the Lamb, this eternal plan of God, He is sovereign over judgment and redemption. He's sovereign over judgment and redemption. Why is it that you, you speak to missionaries where they go, go to these war-torn lands, lands where Christians are being persecuted. And we're not talking like people, people insult us and hurt our feelings because we believe in Jesus and we're like dinosaurs and, you know, we, uh, how can you be so old-fashioned to believe in, in Jesus and the Bible? No, this is, these are places where people are losing their, their property, losing their livelihood, uh, their lives are being taken, their blood is being spilt. And, you know, you ask them, hey, if they had a favorite book, what would it be? They would say Revelation, right? And, and it's a reminder, hey, it's a reminder that our Lord Jesus indeed is victorious. He is the one who wins. It's a reminder that he will return for us. And how much it is that we need to hear this, that our Lord Jesus is victorious. That he is the one who will judge the sinner. He is also the one who redeems sinners. You realize the church goes through all of this turmoil. And you and I should be those who openly admit it's because the church is filled with sinners, filled with imperfect people, people who still need to be refined regarding our attitudes, our thoughts, our priorities, our worship. The strong angel they're asked the question, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? You think about this woeful conclusion. Verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. This here is first an admission of the tragic effects of the fall. Adam and Eve sinned. And it wasn't just them. There was sin... They chose sin, and it affected every single one of us. Their sin had a lasting effect on all humanity and creation. You look at the scriptures, and you look at uh, the, the various descriptions about people in power. The world describes it as power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, the bottom line is, there's only one person who has absolute power, and that's God. But, so so there's, there's absolute power, and there's non-absolute power. And you think about uh, men who are in power. It, it, they seem like they have absolute power, but they don't, because they're all under God's authority. But you see what happens each time uh, sinners are given power. And it's easy for us to think, you know what? We have a new sheriff in town. We have a new ruler. There's been a revolution. There's a new group in charge. What do the scriptures testify? They're all descendants of Adam and Eve. They may be different faces. They may be different rulers, a different dynasty, a different ruler, a different regime. It doesn't matter. The end result, the end result is that power corrupts. And there will be people who are lorded over and 
Maybe uh, those in charge are, are better at, at spinning the story of what they're doing, deceiving the people, uh, but they succumb to temptation, to power, to greed. And, and history demonstrates that. It's not just the scriptures. History demonstrates that. It's not any one group of people that's more evil than another. They're, they all are descendants of Adam and Eve. So this is first an admission of the woeful effects of the fall, that no one is worthy because anyone who had the power lacks, lacks the holiness and lacks the justice to carry it out because they punish their own enemies and not the enemies of God. It's a candid admission also that there is no one righteous, not one. This is the sad state of sin in this world. And I'm going to be straight with you. The sad state of sin in this world is not primarily focused on those who have sinned against you. If you've come to the proper realization of the gravity of sin, then the worst sins are not the sins committed against you. The worst sins are your sins against God. Because this is why. You don't need to be concerned about the judgment of other people's sins against you. You need to be concerned about the judgment of your sins against God. Those are the sins that you should be concerned about. Here, we ought to understand. We ought to understand that God is the one who will call every single sin to an account. He doesn't just take care of the big ones. He takes care of every single one. <clears throat> the worst sins are yours. Just payment will be required of you. Here, this unworthiness of any and all of creation, heaven and on earth and under the earth, to open the scroll is not merely a sin issue. You realize the angels in heaven, those that have not fallen, they also are unworthy to open the book. Meaning that these angels who have not sinned, they can't open the book either. Well, we have some idea that there was an angel and many angels that fell. You know, Satan was one of these high-ranking angels. He fell. Have you ever wondered? You think about when the serpent, or Satan, was in the garden tempting Adam and Eve. He had already fallen. There was a sense in which the temptation uh, that he gave to Adam was personal in the sense that, hey, this is what really succumbed him. This is what... This is what caused his fall, right? His temptation of Jesus uh, followed, right? Very similar, uh, except in some sort of opposite mode. Everything was set up for Adam for success. Hey, you have this pleasant garden. Everything is yours, but this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then you have Jesus who was in the wilderness, everything bad. And Satan comes with these three temptations. You realize that these also would have been the three that brought Satan down. And I think what we ought to understand when it says no one in all of creation, in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, is worthy to open the book with the seven seals. It's saying that no angel could do it because with that power, that authority, they all would have fallen too. Jesus alone is the one who was worthy. And it had to be a man because Adam fell. And there had to be a new man. And the only way that man could be sinless if that man is God. And that's why Jesus alone is the one who is worthy. 
we think about the Apostle John's grievous response. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Perhaps you also can identify with John's grief. You think about those people who become Christians. Those who have understood the good news of the gospel. We're not the ones who are saying, hey, I was looking through all the self-help works, and it seems like this Christianity is the best of those self-help works. No. We're the ones who have said we were in utter despair. We were, we were scraping the rock bottom, right? You know, that you think about a, a, a ship uh, getting too close to the shore. It scrapes bottom. This is where Jesus found me. No other hope. I tried everything. Nothing brought me hope or joy. Nothing could silence the guilt. There was no reason to live. There was no hope in life. There was only despair. But when you think about if there's no one worthy to open the book with the seven seals, no one who can carry out the plan, no one who carries out the judgments and the redemption, then it's the very description. If we have hope only in this life, we are among men most to be pitied. And ultimately, you think about, we're thinking forward to Christ's resurrection. And it's not only his resurrection. He, he is the first. We're looking forward to our own. All the hopes that we have, the promises of eternal life, the promises of the forgiveness of sins. Where would those be if there's no one who carries that out? Where would, where would the new heavens and the new earth be if there's no one to carry out God's grand plan? That there's... No sun that rises. You, you think about what happens. What happens if the sun were to set? You know, you think about the cold. What is the coldest time of the day? It's right before the sun rises again. You think about the natural phenomena of these volcanoes, and they, they spew out uh, all this soot, uh, all this ash. And, and you think about how, in history, we've had really cold days, like these artificial winters, because the sun doesn't shine through. Well, well is there's a sense that with, with Jesus we have... Every day a sun rising. And, and that's figurative of, of this hope that we have that when we sin, we have genuine forgiveness. We have genuine hope. And none of this hope would be there if there's no one worthy to open the seal. So that's the first point. Jesus is worthy to carry out God's eternal plan. We have the second point. Jesus is worthy to receive worship. And verses 8 through 14. <clears throat> and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Here, we have in these verses 8 through 14, we have uh, scenes, three scenes of worship. Offering up to the Lamb in widening circles of the chorus. So the first, uh, the first scene would be the four living creatures. 
uh, or maybe since we're talking, this is uh, scene two, then, then this is like song one. So song one, song two, song three. So the four living creatures, meaning the cherubim and the 24 elders, they make their praise. And then the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands of angels, they make their praise. And then in the third, in the third song, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea give their praise. So round one, uh, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, and think about what they're uh, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. Jesus is worthy because he is the Son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. Yet, there's clearly something about Christ's death, or his humbling himself and taking upon human flesh, uh, living the perfect life, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and then being exalted to the highest place. Hebrews 2 speaks about he was made perfect through suffering. Well, wasn't he already perfect? Yes, he was. Yes, he is. But what does that mean? Well, there's something that happened there. He, he was exalted to the highest place that every, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. This is Philippians 2, 8 and 9. And by your blood, you ransom people for God. That's a big question. You know, Job asked that question. How can a man born of a woman be pure? How can sinners, how can you and I stand before the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty? Psalm 49. The Psalm says, no man, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, and that he should not undergo decay. God is not impressed by wealth. The reason why is because he already owns all the wealth in this world. The cattle on a thousand hills belongs to him. God cannot be bribed with his own money. <clears throat> Jesus alone is the just payment, the ransom that sets sinners free from their debt to God. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. What is this ransom? You have, uh, say, a family where their child is kidnapped. And the way it works is the child gets kidnapped. The kidnappers say, hey, you need to pay a what? A ransom. So some kind of money, you get paid, or you pay them, and you get your child back. Or you can think about uh, uh, other, other scenes, other scenarios, but the bottom line is that someone is in captivity, and that Christ's payment of his blood is the payment that sets us free. And we're also told, and it's, he's ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Have you ever noticed, whenever God gives his standard, he's given his word, he's, he's given us his perfect law, 
Sinners come by and say, that's not right. That's not holy. We've established our own standard of holiness, right? This is, this is why you think about concepts of love and justice and mercy and kindness. The world redefines every one of those, right? They're going to have their own view of what, of what love and mercy and kindness and justice are. They're going to be different than what God thinks. And you and I must know which one is right. It's not the world. It's God's view. So the world comes by, and the world prides itself in diversity. They esteem what is good. Hey, they esteem diversity. Hey, we esteem diversity. Well, you think about how ethnicity then becomes the focus, the worldly focus. May as well, because uh, no one's willing to speak about the righteousness that everyone lacks. You, you see here, here, this is the elephant in the room, is that we're all standing there with you know, egg or dirt on our faces, we're all unrighteous. And no one, hey, you got egg on your face. Hey, I got egg on my face. You got egg on your face too. No one wants to talk about that. So they're going to talk about everything, anything and everything else other than the true need for eternity is that we're unrighteous and we have in Christ our perfect mediator. They're going to talk about anything and everything. You think about how we have so much free time. When was the last time you... You had your washer dryer break, and then, oh, I, I ordered a new washer dryer. It hasn't arrived yet. I, I'm having to wash my clothes by hand and then go hang it up and dry it outside. No, we, we have so much free time with all this you know, special machinery that, that does things so that we're not doing manual labor, but then we, we have all this distraction at the same time. And then you look at people in the past, how, how much knowledge they had of the scriptures and, and uh even little children knew so much about the Bible and theology, and many of them didn't know how to read. And you, you think, how, how did they get all that? Well, they had a proper focus on time and how they prioritized their time. But we ought to understand that our Lord is truly the Lord of diversity. He is the one who made it. He is the one who made all kinds of diversity. Here we're told that Christ died for people in every tribe and language and people and nation. It's easy. It's easy in this day and age that there's always going to be the ins and the outs, the goods and the bads. But you realize we can vilify any group we want, but you realize that Jesus has redeemed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Don't get caught up with that vilification. Then we don't create your own. Because here, we can't say, hey, we despise this group or that group. Because here we have Jesus died to redeem people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. That means there ought to be a witness to every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you think about the story uh, of Jonah, the prophet Jonah. Here he described these Assyrians, the people of Nineveh. He wasn't supposed to do that. He didn't want to bring the good news because they were the enemies of the Jews, and he wanted to see them burned and, and, and destroyed and, and suffering. It's a lesson to us that there ought to be love extended, the gospel extended. Continuing in verses uh, 9 and 10, 
You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Very similar to the conversation that Jesus had with Pilate. So Jesus talks about, my kingdom is not of this world. And, and there, Pilate said, oh, you have a kingdom. So that means you're a king. He's going the right way. How can you have a kingdom without a king? Well, here Jesus speaks, or, or the, the cherubim and the elders are speaking about a kingdom. You have made them a kingdom and priest or God. There is a kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is his, his kingdom is coming. His kingdom is not of this world. He is the king. He is not only a king, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. First Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You realize when you bring your passport to various countries, right? There's this idea, hey, I'm, I'm from this country. Oh, that passport is a value. Oh, you're from that country, that passport, no, not so much, right? But you realize, it doesn't matter what passport you hold. What matters is, do you have citizenship in heaven? Whatever temporary citizenship or status you have, we may just be sojourners in a country, but are you part of Christ's kingdom? That is what is important. And he calls us, we're told, out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This requires that we acknowledge whatever we had before Christ, Jesus called it darkness. It's darkness. We can't say, hey, before I met Jesus, everything was great for me. Anyone who describes his or her life like that indicates they haven't found the right Jesus. We must all confess, before Christ, our lives were darkness. And what he has called us to is into his marvelous light. Life is far better coming to know Christ. Never mind all the negatives that come with it. Those things have to pale a comparison such that you have Christ. Perhaps it means rejection of your family. Perhaps it means the destruction of your marriage. Perhaps it means your children disown you, your parents disown you, whatever it might be. That we might say, that was darkness, and now this is light. You think also about the ransom. The ransom is what sets men free. But it's not as if that's it. It's not as if you, you were, who were shackled have suddenly, your, your chains are removed. It's not just that. We're told a kingdom and priests to our God. That means new status. You look at various countries, right? where they have this caste system. Ooh, you, you, look even, you look even in the, the, uh, the Anglo system, right? Where, where were the priests, right? You have the knights, you have the nobles, and you have the priests. And you have other countries where, hey, the priestly class was the highest class. Okay. Isn't, this, isn't this good news that uh, he's made a, a kingdom and priest to our God? That uh, we would have high status. You think about what we have. Perhaps becoming a Christian for you just might mean uh, the loss of your earthly inheritance. Perhaps there's threats, son, daughter. If you receive baptism, if you profess faith in Christ publicly, you will be dead to us. 
Okay, that's acceptable. Because here, what we have is we become heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Kingdom and priest to God. The only way someone will leave behind what they have in this world, meaning, hey, you bow the knee to Jesus, you no longer exist to our family, is if someone says, no, I have something far greater, something eternal, something that, that I will have forever. See also the round two. Four living creatures, 24 elders, myriads and myriads of angels. When we think about these angels, was it in Isaiah? The, I'm forget, uh, forgetting the group, they were the Assyrians. Was it the Assyrians came, they're on Israel's doorstep, and then God sends this angel, and this one angel takes out 185,000 uh, warriors in one night. And it's like, did he do that without even breaking a sweat? He, he probably did. And then you have Peter, the scene, right, where he, he hacks off uh, the Malchus's ear, the servant of the high priest, because, hey, they're coming to arrest Jesus. And Jesus, hey, put that sword away. And, and he's saying, hey, have I not five legions? You know, a legion is five, five or six thousand, right? Jesus is saying, no shortage of angels. Imagine what they could do, right? But here, these angels, myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, and they're praising, they're praising God. They're praising the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. One of the things we learn from Revelation is that there's something significant about seven. And we have here a sevenfold praise. Power and wealth, wisdom and might, honor and glory, and blessing. A complete, a complete praise. Myriads and myriads of angels. So, so some people claim that the, the, first, the first song, uh, the four cherubim and the 24 elders, it was you know, the, the church. And then here it's extended to the angels. And then round three, you have all of creation. Every living creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. Here we, we think about how this brings up an interesting concept. So the book of Revelation, there's two ways you can interpret it. You think about the various chapters. Is it, number one, is it futuristic and is it linear? So when you think about the old cassette player, right? Hey, if, you, if you wanted to listen to a song, hey, some of you remember this. You want to listen to a song, you have to stop and hit repeat or hit rewind. And then, and then you play again. It's all... I went too far, or I didn't go far enough. I had to hit rewind again, or I have to fit fast forward it. And you, you think about all that, and it's like, oh man, that's a big headache, right? So you think about how is Revelation a linear, it's like a tape, linear, and it's all future from chapter four on, it's all future. Or is there perhaps what we think of as a right view, a recapitulation view? Are, are they talking about uh, many ways to say the same thing over and over, and over again? Right? It, it, are they repeating itself? It's, it's not a linear time. It's scenes that are repetitious. We're seeing the same thing in different ways. And we have such an idea there. Uh, in, in verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, because it hasn't happened yet. We're not there yet. So this is 
that principle. And, and this mention is reminiscent. You think about Psalm 50, uh, Psalm 150, verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Yes. Praise the Lord. That we are those who are saying and we're believing. You know what? We may be few. We may be despised. But we are those who began earlier. There were those who came before us who were praising Jesus. They lost their lives because of whom they were worshiping, whom they were praising. We think about how the world says, I, I'm going to stand about this name. The Jewish, the Jewish leaders told the, the apostles, we, you, you must not preach in this name anymore. So they flogged them and sent them on. You think about how persecution, persecution doesn't kill the church, persecution grows the church. You can't spread it out. Here, we think about how everything that has breath, all of creation longing, the groaning. And notice, it's to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Think about what we talked about last week. There was no correction about receiving worship, the one on the throne. There's also no correction here for the Lamb. That the, you see that in that line, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. It's not as if the Lamb, who is Jesus, is receiving in any way an inferior worship. Oh, we give better praise to the one on the throne, but the Lamb, oh, oh we should include him. No, this is, this is one who is God. And he is in every way equal. The worship given to Christ is no inferior worship. We're reminded that our Lord Jesus is worthy of our worship. Here we think about this passage. Jesus alone is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. Jesus alone is the one who controls all of history down to the minutest detail, down to the very hairs of your head. It's a reminder to you and to me who it is we ought to fear, who it is we ought to serve, who it is we ought to please. It is the Lord Jesus. It's also a reminder to us, worship to the one on the throne, also worship to the Lamb who is slain. In order to have the Father, you must have the Son. And the warning is, if you do not have the Son, you do not have the Father. And so I ask you, what is your relation to Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in Him? You realize that the ransom that He pays, the blood that He spills, there is no other place, there is no other solution for you and for me. Jesus alone is the one who sheds His blood and pays the price for your sins and mine. He alone is the one who makes that perfect payment. We think also about how we are part of God's plan. That our worship each day, each time we gather together on a Lord's Day, this is, so to say, a foretaste 
of what we will do in heaven. That this is training, this is preparation for what we will do in heaven. You children, you think about how your parents say, hey, we're sitting down, we're after dinner or whatever, we're going to sit down after dinner, we're preparing you as a toddler or whatever, we're preparing you so that you can sit still at church when we worship and we're doing it at home first. And, And so to say, what we're doing now as we gather as God's people is preparing us for worship for an eternity to the Lamb, the Lamb who is slain. And others can defy Him and deny Him and curse Him, but you realize the more you hear that, the more you realize how true He is. No one goes through and curses all the names of the false gods of the Hindus. You realize that. The millions of gods, you don't, you don't see them misusing their names. No, they only misuse the name of the true one. And you realize the way Satan works, he wants to deaden the sound of that name because that is the only name that saves. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. May the hearing the misuse of the name of Jesus not dull you to your true hope in Him because He is the one who gives eternal life. He alone, He alone is the one who can carry out the judgments and provide redemption for His people. And we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank You that though, though we are weak, that You are strong. Though Father... We once loved the darkness. You have called us to your kingdom, to be a kingdom of priests. You have given us joy. You have given us blessing. You have given us eternal life. You have given us your son. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the regular reminder that we need, that we have the true hope of forgiveness in your son, Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. And if we have any boast, may our boast be in him and him alone. We thank you for your precious gift that you did not withhold anything. You did not withhold your son from us. Father, we pray that you would grant us a greater appreciation for your precious gift. We pray, Father, that we would acknowledge we become less and he becomes greater. We thank you for your provision for us. We thank you, Father, for your mercy to us through your son. In Christ's name, amen. Please turn in your hymnals to hymn 358. We'll stand and sing together. Sing Choirs of New Jerusalem. Songs and songs of holy 